You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning, church family. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to the gospel according to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, our sermon text for this morning will be verses 17 through 26. Gospel according to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. In a moment, I want to read this text out loud, and I invite you to follow along now as we get to hear God address us. God is so kind to us in so many ways, and one of his kindnesses to us we get to experience every Sunday, and I hope it never, never ceases to amaze us, is that right now, God is going to address us. So now let's turn our attention to his holy, inspired, and authoritative word. We're going to begin reading in verse 17. And he, being Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. May God now bless the preaching of his word. Well, over the last few weekend, many high school and college students all over the country have received their diplomas during graduating ceremonies that have taken place over the last couple of weekends. And during these ceremonies, as you probably are aware, during this ceremony, a speech is given to the graduating class. It's usually called the commencement address. And if you've been to enough graduations, let's be honest, most of these speeches all sound the same. Something along the lines of work hard, follow your dreams, Never give up. Believe in yourself. If I was to go back and to give advice to my younger self, here's what I would say. There's usually humor and inspirational advice. And I think it's, I think it's required that you have to quote someone during a commencement address. Now, though all these commencement addresses are given with utmost sincerity, most of them are not memorable and therefore will be forgotten. I will say, however, just a little side note, 
Danielle Estrada was this year's commencement address speaker for LifeGate Christian School, and she did an amazing job. Wish everyone could have heard her. Danielle, being the former elementary teacher of a number of the graduates, was invited by this year's class to address the senior class. Danielle is also the wife of Philip Estrada, a former pastor here at LifeGate who now leads Mission City Fellowship. And Danielle's address was memorable, it was meaningful, and it was Christ-exalting. But most commencement speeches don't fit under that category. They can easily be forgotten. Now, why am I bringing up commencement speeches today in light of this sermon? Because a thought entered my mind seeing my daughter graduate, Sydney graduating from LifeGate last weekend, and then seeing all over and through news stories about college graduation and who the commencement speakers were and the kind of advice they gave. I, I started having a, a, a wild thought. What would Jesus say if he was the commencement speaker? What would he say? If he was asked to give the commencement address, now we can only speculate, obviously, what Jesus would say if he was the commencement speaker. But I think whatever Jesus would choose to say, it would definitely shock everyone in attendance. Let's all agree on that. No matter what you think he's going to say, he's going to say something and everybody's going to be, we didn't see that coming. Whatever he would say, would not be what everyone expected him to say, but whatever he would choose to say would be the most profound, life-giving truth anyone could speak. I wonder if he wouldn't look over the graduates and say to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. Church, today we have the privilege of listening in to the first part of the greatest sermon ever preached. Beginning today, over the next few weeks, we are going to listen in as Jesus gives a sermon to his disciples. And today we get to listen to the first part of the greatest sermon ever preached. But before we give our undivided attention to Jesus as he addresses his disciples, we must first reflect on this summary statement given to us by Luke for a reason. At this point in Luke's gospel, he, he feels it necessary to insert another summary statement made up of three verses, verses 17 through 19, that, that tells us about the ministry of Jesus. So before we hear what Jesus began to say to his disciples in the greatest sermon ever preached, Luke inserts this summary statement. That brings us then to our first point. Verses 17 through 19 is the ministry of the Messiah. And what Luke does in these three verses is he summarizes the impact Jesus' ministry was having on people. That's what we find in these three verses. Jesus' ministry was having a major impact on many people. But that's not all Luke's giving us here in these three verses. Not only are we told about the impact his ministry's having, what we discover is that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was authenticating his ministry as the Messiah. That's why we read these three verses here at this point 
in Luke's gospel. Everything Jesus is doing is authenticating his ministry as the Messiah. Look, look again at verse 17. Luke tells us, and he, being Jesus, came down with them. This is the 12 apostles looking back to last week. He came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. The first thing we, we discover in verse 17 is that many people, Many people are, are flocking to, to see Jesus. His 12 apostles are there. Many disciples. We're not told how many. We're just told it's a large crowd. Is this in the hundreds? Is this in the thousands? And then on top of that, many people who are hearing him for the first time or who haven't yet committed to him, they are there. So there are many people there to hear Jesus. But not only do we see the impact Jesus is having by the amount of people, but we see the kind of impact he's having by how many places they're coming from. It's one thing to say, oh man, there were 5,000 people. But there were 5,000 people from that region and that city and that city and that region. They were coming from all over, and that's what we, we see here. They're coming from Judea and Jerusalem, and we're told from the coastland of Tyre and Sidon, and that just goes right past us. But anyone in this context, knowing the Old Testament, anytime Tyre and Sidon are mentioned, they are the enemies, the adversaries of God's people in the Old Testament. And yet people are flocking to see and to experience the Messiah. So we see the scope of Jesus' ministry, and we see the impact of Jesus' public ministry. That leads to the question, why? Why are people coming? Why are that many people coming from that many places? Well, verse 18 tells us, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So why are so many people from so many different places coming to Jesus? Luke tells us to hear him speak and to be healed. Those two things, both his teaching and his healing, demonstrated that he is the Messiah. That's how we're to understand all that Jesus says and all that Jesus does. They, they demonstrate that he's the Messiah. For example, everything we've heard Jesus say up to this point and everything we're going to hear Jesus say throughout Luke's gospel, we must listen to it through this lens. Not only is everything Jesus say, saying instructive, everything Jesus is saying is revelatory. Everything Jesus is saying must be heard under the backdrop of all the promises of the Old Testament. And everything that Jesus says, you have to say, well, you can't say that unless you're the Messiah. So he, Jesus isn't just a great moral teacher, just a great spiritual leader. He's not just a great theologian giving out advice. Everything he's saying, you say, you can't say that unless who you are is none other than the Messiah. So we must listen to Jesus' words in that way. And, and not only that, we must see all of his miracles doing the same thing. All of his miracles are pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. In verse 19, Luke tells us the manner and the power in which Jesus healed people. And by doing this, it demonstrated he was the Messiah. Listen to how he describes what Jesus was doing. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Make note of this. The words that Jesus spoke and the miracles he performed must be, must be understood in light of the backdrop of him being the Messiah. If we read any of Luke's gospel and isolate the miracles or isolate teachings that Jesus gave and we forget what their meaning 
meant to do and how they function, we are going to misinterpret each one of those events and each one of Jesus' sayings. What's happening here is it's clear through his words and through his miracles that he is the Messiah. Now, with this perspective in mind, let's now listen in as Jesus opens up his mouth to address his disciples. That brings us to our second point, the message of the Messiah, verses 20 through 26. Luke now transitions from making this summary statement to the beginning of this sermon by giving us this single line. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. That single line is important. It's important for us as the reader because what it tells us is that Jesus will be addressing his disciples on the topic of discipleship. So this week and the next few weeks, as we make our way through this sermon, we must remember when you're listening, just like the same as when we're reading a book, you have to know who, who's the author addressing and why do they write this? Okay, in this sermon, who's Jesus' intended audience? He is speaking to his disciples about discipleship. Now, why do I make this, this point? Because we should not hear, we should not hear these words from Jesus as if he was telling us what we must do to be a disciple. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, hey, if you love everybody, including your enemy, hey, you're, you're going to be a disciple. He's already explained how to be a disciple in chapter 5 by telling us the story of Matthew and Levi, and both of them had the exact same experience, and what was true of them is true of us. There is one way to be a disciple of Jesus. It's through faith and repentance. So he's not saying, do these things, that makes you a disciple. No, faith and repentance make us a disciple. But once you are a disciple, what what should you look like? What should I look like? What's characteristic about my people? See, what Jesus is addressing here in this sermon that we're beginning today, what he's addressing are the qualities and the characteristics that should mark all of his disciples. That's how we should hear this sermon today and over the next few weeks. These are the characteristics and the qualities that should mark his disciple. Every disciple of Jesus should exhibit these qualities because we should have these qualities because we've been given a divine perspective about who Christ is and about his kingdom. Because now we know who Christ is and because we understand his kingdom, we now exhibit these qualities. Now, beginning in the rest of verse 20 on to the end, Jesus is then going to pronounce four blessings followed by four woes. Now, before we look at each one of them individually, let me just say a word about that word blessing and woe. Think of it this way. It's clear that Jesus picked four blessings, picked Four woes, what's he communicating here? Think of the word blessing like this. It communicates divine pleasure. Sometimes people just translate the word blessed as just happy. But think of it, Jesus is pronouncing blessing to them, so he's basically saying these are the things that they give divine pleasure. So we're, we're getting pleasure from them, but we're getting pleasure because we know it's pleasing the Lord. We could have pleasure and not be pleasing the Lord. So this is a divine pleasure. These are the things that, that should bring you pleasure because they bring God pleasure. And the opposite, these woes are the things that communicate divine displeasure. That's what a woe is. These are things God says, I, I am not for that. So let's now listen in and un, just walk through these Blessings followed by the woe. And the first one comes in verse 20, the second half. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. First thing, 
Here's the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus begins with these blessings and the woes. And the first thing he begins with is blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. And that immediately raises questions in my mind. One of the questions is Jesus saying that those who are poor are automatically included in his kingdom and those who are rich are not. And the answer is no, that's not what he's saying. Well, Is he implying that once we are a disciple, we must live a life of poverty? No, that's not what he's implying. If anything, the the one that wrote this gospel account too and was probably able to write this gospel account, Theophilus, remember the guy from the very first few verses that he dedicates this book to and dedicates a sequel to? Most likely, we can't say for sure the reason he's writing this book to Theophilus is because Theophilus was the underwriter of this project. He was probably a wealthy man who made it possible for us to have these this gospel account today. So Luke is throwing no shade, or Jesus is showing throwing no shade on those who are wealthy. Then what did Jesus mean when he pronounced this blessing? Well, all four of these blessings must be read together. And most importantly, all four of these blessings must be read and interpreted in light of the four woes, which are their opposites. Did you notice that? It's not just there happens to be four woes or four blessings and four woes. Did you notice all four woes are the opposite of all four blessings? So we must read them together. And I believe when we do that, here's what we see Jesus is saying. I believe he's saying something along these lines. If you end up poor... For the sake of my kingdom, you are better off because you've inherited the kingdom. Listen, if being one of my disciples, remember the last blessing. Remember, we have to read all these together. The last blessing is blessed are you if you're persecuted. So he's most likely looking ahead and seeing some of my disciples in order to be my disciple. It's going to cost them. And I don't just mean cost them in in, in a metaphorical way. It's really going to cost them. Like financially. And he's saying, hey, it's, it's better to be poor for the sake of my kingdom because you will inherit the kingdom. On the other hand, the rich in this world, Jesus pronounces a woe on them, not because they're rich, but because they put their hope in their Riches, they've received their reward here on earth. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 24, about them. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Those who are poor will receive. Those or those who are poor will receive. Those who are rich have received. You know what your inheritance is? Whatever's in the bank. That's If that's your hope, you better hope you have a lot of it. You better hope it lasts. Because if that's where you put your hope, you can have it, Jesus says. That's, that's what he's communicating here. Then he moves from there to then give the second point of blessing. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be Satisfied. Blessed are you who are hungry now. This second attribute of one of his disciples that he highlights because it's worthy of blessing is, is that of hunger. We're hungering now. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't speaking about physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. Jesus is saying those who are hungry, listen, now, that's the key. Those who are hungry now will be satisfied. It's guaranteed they will be satisfied, but get this. They're hungry now. They'll be satisfied later. They're hungry now, but they have to remain hungry. They're hungry only to be satisfied. They're going to be a member of the woe party. They have to remain hungry. Compare this now with the posture 
that is the opposite. Verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. What is Jesus getting at by making this pronouncement of blessing and woe in regards to hunger? I wonder if he's not saying something like this. Sometimes those who appear most spiritually content, and I would add this parenthesis, they appear most spiritually content due to their false sense of maturity. They are spiritually content, but one day they will long to be spiritually satisfied and will not be satisfied. I think Jesus has some people in mind, like the Pharisees and others. I don't think it's exclusive, but I, I think he's, he's addressing some of those that everybody would have looked at, at the Pharisees and said, oh man, those are the most mature, spiritual, I mean, those guys, they are, they are spiritually satisfied. And Jesus says, oh no. <laughs> if they are, you don't want to be like them. They might look satisfied now. They may no longer look hungry, but they are going to live for eternity, longing, but not true of my disciples. See, those who are never satisfied with their spiritual state or with their spiritual knowledge, Jesus says they they will one day be completely satisfied. Those who just have the humility to never be okay with their spiritual state. And I don't mean questioning whether they belong to Jesus, but just never thinking, yeah, I've, I've arrived. I'm doing pretty good. Or like chapter 18, the, ta- the, 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 the lawyer that shows up, puffs out his chest and says, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector. He obviously wasn't there for the sermon or he had fallen asleep. Because he was no longer spiritually hungry. He was good. I'm, I'm good. Here's why I'm good, because I'm not like that guy. Jesus says that that's a dangerous posture. And that brings us now to the third pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. What does that mean? Those who weep Now, is Jesus saying that we're better off sad rather than happy in his kingdom? Is that the point that he's making here? No. I think that word to mourn or to express sorrow has spiritual connotations, which which is meant to communicate a sense of spiritual sobriety. See, as disciples of Jesus, think of it this way. As disciples of Jesus, we understand how fallen the world is due to sin, and it grieves us. We understand how fallen the world is due to sin. But the culture around us, the culture, they know the world's broken because they too get sad. They get sad over mass shootings and cancer diagnoses and tsunamis and earthquakes and financial fraud and serial killers and drunk drivers that kill people and all kinds of injustice. But you know what they don't do? They don't mourn over sin. And they don't mourn over their own sin. They don't mourn over the grievous sins that get celebrated in our culture. Oh, they may be sad over a school shooting, but they're not sad over over sins involving sexual immorality and gender confusion that are celebrated and not even celebrated, but made to be the standard. And if you disagree with it, who in the world are you? Here's what the culture needs to mourn over. They need to mourn over their own sin of self-righteousness that makes them despise anyone in culture that doesn't agree with them. Lastly, culture needs to mourn and repent over the greatest sin of all, a sin everybody on the planet has committed. It's the sin of belittling God and His kingdom. And for all the sadness in our culture, who's sad over that? 
Who has shed a tear over belittling the maker of the universe? That's what Jesus means when he says, you mourn now, you will laugh later. But there's many in our culture that need to hear these words from Jesus when he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Those who laugh now, who laugh at expressions of unbelief and immorality, Jesus says will one day mourn and weep and will find no comfort. That brings us now to the final fourth blessing, the one which receives the most attention. Beginning in verse 22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Blessed are those who experience persecution because they are my disciples. Jesus says they will be rewarded in eternity for all eternity. See, it's better to be maligned for being a Christian than to be praised by those who love what is false. It's better. It's better to be maligned as a Christian. You believe what? You think that's sin? It's better to be maligned to be a Christian than to be praised by those who love what is false. And that's the point Jesus is making here in this blessing and this woe. Now put all these together. All four blessings, all four woes. And think about the image Jesus is conveying as he describes his followers versus those who reject his kingdom. Put it all together and and see that Jesus is painting a picture of two different groups. And this is important for us to catch because Jesus is going to use twos throughout the rest of this sermon. Okay, so here's his first use of, of twos. Jesus is basically saying, my disciples don't live for riches. They care about spiritual things more than earthly comforts. They don't live primarily to please people. They live to please the king whom they follow. If you were to summarize all four of those blessings, that's what Jesus just said. You want to know about my disciples? Here's what they like. They don't live for riches. They care about spiritual things. They're, they're not concerned with earthly comforts. And most importantly, they don't live to please people. They live to please the king. But those who oppose the kingdom, they do the opposite. They put their hope in wealth. They want to be entertained. That's what it means to laugh. They want to be entertained, live carefree lives. They care about what is temporal, and they desire to be well thought of by others, even if that means displeasing the Lord. That's the difference. That's the difference between what the disciples of Jesus should look like versus those in the culture at large. Now, I would like to suggest that we view these verses that we just reflected on, verses 20 through 26, and not only these verses, but the rest of the sermon, we we view it like this. This is what I think Jesus is doing in this sermon. Jesus is revealing the radical reversal that takes place in the kingdom of Christ. Did you notice the reversal in, in this theme of Blessings and woes. In each blessing individually and in each woe, did you notice that there's a reversal? You laugh now, you mourn later. You mourn now, you laugh later. 
And not only is there a reversal in each one of these blessings and each one of these woes, you're supposed to read each blessing and see the woes as the reversal. This is a major theme in Luke's gospel. Just think about the words that Mary proclaimed in chapter 1, verses 51 through 54. It's often called Mary's song. And listen to what she says. Because many, and I think they're right, many people who've spent a long time studying loose gospel would actually say these words by Mary should be the lens we wear to read the entire book. Listen to what Mary says. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearers. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Once again, I believe we are supposed to read the entire gospel of Luke, not only this sermon, but the entire gospel of Luke wearing those lenses. The entire book is showing us there is this reversal. Here's what the, here's what the world says. Do this. This will make you successful. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's the opposite. It's the reverse. Those who are full, those who have plenty of money in the bank will one day walk away with nothing. And those who choose to follow me, who have very little to their name, they will inherit the earth. There's a great reversal taking place. And paying attention to this, this reversal theme in Luke's gospel, it's, it's essential because it helps us accurately apply each passage we come to in Luke's gospel appropriately. I believe if we lose sight of this reversal theme, we actually could misapply. So here's what I want to do. In light of this reversal theme, I want to close by giving us three points of application. What are we to do in light of what we've just heard from the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached? Here's the first thing. This theme of reversal reminds us that we are strangers and aliens in this world. Everything Jesus just pronounced a woe on is everything our culture says, that's what makes you successful. Jesus says, according to the world standards, opposite of my kingdom. Opposite of my kingdom. So we must live in this world as aliens and strangers. And listen, if we forget that this is our identity, that we are aliens and strangers, you know what we're going to be tempted to do? Compromise our mission. Christians and churches that forget their mission to be aliens and strangers will forget their mission. Can I just recommend something to you? I want to read in a moment from 1 Peter. I want to recommend, if you haven't read through 1 Peter in a while, it doesn't take you that long. I, I, I can't say 15 minutes, 30 minutes, but it's it's not long. If you haven't read through it in a while, I would encourage you not only to read it, make it a regular part. If you don't read it once a year, you don't read it several times a year, you should read it because it is so relevant to us. And it reminds us, it was a, it was a letter written to a people who were experiencing the exact things Jesus is talking about. And their temptation would have been the same temptations we would have to forget their identity. And he reminds them, no, don't forget who you are. You are exiles. You are strangers. You belong to a different kingdom. And that's why he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But does this not sound familiar? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God Rest upon you. We are exhorted in 1 Peter 4, 12 to not 
be surprised, to not be surprised when we experience trials in, in regards to our faith in Christ. In other words, we're not to be surprised when persecution comes because we actually are disciples of Jesus. Now, maybe you say, Josh, maybe some time ago, maybe years ago, I would have been surprised because when Judeo-Christian values was the norm and the majority of our culture. I expected that. Now I'm not surprised. Maybe you say, I've got 1 Peter 4.12 down. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by culture or culturals uh, or the institutions of culture. But maybe, just maybe the problem is that the reason you're not surprised is because you've given into cynicism. You're not surprised. If anything, you're like, well, <laughs> of course they're going to persecute me. You've given into cynicism. And listen, it, it would be easy to do. But here's the problem with cynicism. It stifles our joy. Actually, that's not an appropriate word. It suffocates our joy. Oh, it makes sense why you would be cynical about the culture and its institution and have no trust in government and people and all of these things. And every time you hear about the world and culture and all of the ideologies being thrown around, it'd be easy to say, well, yeah, of course they're doing that. And just have a cynical heart. But listen, if we do that, we cannot do the very thing Jesus commanded us to do when we express experience opposition. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's what we're called to do on that day. We're not going to say, well, of course they're persecuting us. We're to have joy. And cynicism kills joy. It stifles joy. It suffocates joy. That's the second thing we're called to do. We're called to rejoice when persecution comes. Not only are we called to live as aliens and strangers, we're called to rejoice. We are those who rejoice when we're falsely accused for being, quote, hateful, closed-minded, bigoted, naive, unintelligent, you fill in the blank. You know what we're to be when we're called those names? Not cynical, joyful, <laughs> joyful. We'd have joy in those moments. Now, let's be clear. I don't think Jesus is commanding two things by, by telling us where to be joyful. I don't think he's commanding us to be joyful that we're being maligned as if that's pleasant. Like we're a glutton for punishment. Yeah, I'm being, I'm being persecuted. Have you ever been persecuted? There's nothing fun about it. So Jesus isn't telling us, take it easy, take it lightly when you're being maligned. Nor do I think Jesus is saying, find joy in the fact that those who are maligning you misunderstand your motives. I don't think that's something we should have joy in. That's grievous. That those who our heart is overflowing in love call us hateful. It's the last thing we are. We love them with a love that God has put in us. And we love them far greater than they know. And yet they have the audacity because they can't see it to think we're hateful. We don't have to find joy in that. That's to break our heart. No, we rejoice in the face of persecution because we know. We know that we are being rejected for being followers of Christ and that Christ will be our reward. He will be our reward for all eternity. So how can we cultivate joy during times of opposition? It's easy to say, we're not to be cynical, we're to have joy. And Jesus doesn't just say joy, like put a smile on your face. He's a leaper for joy. That's, that's, that's a different kind of level of joy. How in the world can we cultivate this? I think it's at the very end of verse 23. I think Jesus informs them when he says, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I don't believe by making that statement, Jesus was just being glib. I don't think he was just saying, hey guys, when opposition comes, take heart, you're in good company. Even the prophets were maligned. 
think Jesus was saying something far deeper and richer. I think Jesus was saying something like this. When you experience persecution and opposition for being a disciple, don't divorce your experience from the broader story of Scripture. I mean, think about those words. He uses the word fathers, saying, isn't that exactly what Israel has always done? These leaders in Israel, aren't they just like their fathers, the patriarchs? I don't mean the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, like, like those who came before them. Isn't this what happened to the prophets? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's not just saying you're in good company. He's saying, listen, when this happens, open up the Bible. <laughs> you're not the first. Isn't that the story of Scripture? Isn't that what feels? Have you ever noticed how most of the Psalms, when we think of the Psalms, we think they're all happy, clappy, everything's good and everything. Do you realize how many of the Psalms aren't just full of suffering? Do you know what the predominant theme of all 150 Psalms are? The Psalm is saying, I'm seeking to know you and the world is opposing you. And now therefore they're opposing me. Come to my aid. Go back and read the Psalms with that lens. It will shock you how that is the predominant theme. See, Scripture is filled with it. And in those moments, we cultivate joy by saying, God, I am remaining faithful. I'm remaining faithful to you. And listen, this passage points beyond the prophets because when we, when we, experience persecution, you know what ought to come to mind? Not just the prophets were persecuted, the Savior was persecuted. And Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. So all we're doing, because we're being persecuted, is we are emulating the Savior. And that ought to bring us joy. That ought to bring us great joy. Now, lastly, this is the final one. By seeing this theme of reversal, it should compel us to live for eternity. Nothing, notice this, nothing that Jesus said to his disciples in verses 20 through 26 makes a bit of sense if you lose sight of eternity. Remove eternity from the equation and now explain. Okay, so they mourn now, they laugh later. When will that be? They're hungry now, and yet they'll be hungry forever. Like, see, we can't understand what Jesus just said if we remove eternity from view. Hear this, brothers and sisters. If you are a disciple of Jesus, we will be rewarded for our allegiance to Christ and a great reversal will occur. However, we should not expect it to take place here and now. We should not expect it to take place here and now. See, as we consider how to navigate cultural opposition in the days ahead, listen, it will be imperative. It is imperative that the reality of, turn, of eternity be ever before us. When we as Christians, our churches lose sight of eternity, they lose the culture war. And way too many Christians and way too many churches are fighting the culture war without eternity in view. Jesus doesn't say, you remain faithful, you will have your man as the president. Every law you want in the books will be in the books. No, they will keep making laws that make it harder for you to be faithful to me, and you may even be thrown in jail because of their laws. See, when we lose sight of eternity, we start looking for the world to give us what God never promised this side of eternity. We will be rewarded. Our faithfulness will pay off, but it may not pay off here and now. And sadly, 
We can be tempted, every Christian can be tempted to view eternity as the place that matters when we die. But eternity is the place that ought to shape how we live every day. None of us would be so crass to say that. None of us would say, well, the eternity only matters when we die. But don't we live that way? What difference does it make if every decision we make, every action is motivated by eternity? I would rather be poor now so I can be rich in Jesus later. I would rather spend my days hungry and never fully satisfied so that one day I can drink of the well that satisfies forever. I would rather you malign my motives and call me every name in the book if that means that I keep my allegiance to King Jesus. It's worth it. Brothers and sisters, may our hope for eternal reward be rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus alone. We, we long for an eternal reward, but listen, we must not believe we will receive this heavenly reward because we've remained faithful. We will receive this reward because he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for pulling back the curtains on reality today and showing us what really matters. It's opposite of everything our works and our culture and maybe even our homes tell us matter. Thank you for pulling back the curtain and showing us a glimpse of eternity and a glimpse of your kingdom. May we now live in light of what we've just heard. But we confess we cannot do that apart from your help. So Spirit of God, help us now. Help us by the power of the Spirit to be those who live the way we just heard you address. Lord, may you build your church May you build LifeGate Church to be filled with faithful, fruitful, fruitful disciples. Continue to impact the world for your kingdom. And may you use today to be one of your means of doing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.